Greetings, loved ones. Welcome back to another episode of Kaiju Curry House, the British bi-weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you the creme anglais at B-movie banter. This is episode 69. I'm joined by my friends Paul and Joe, and today we have a senior creature prosthetics artist and puppeteer, Mr. Toby Barron. How is everyone doing? Fantastic. Good, thanks. Wonderful. Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Right, we're going to jump straight to the deep end. Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? I've been reading a graphic novel, Pacific Rim related. Um, so this is Tales from Year Zero, and it's done by Del Toro. So, you know, it's um, pretty good. It's a prequel to the film, and it's when they're constructing the wall, um, basically someone's going to interview one of the captains, and they talk about how it all started. So when the first breach happened and how they um, figured out drifting and stuff. So... You know, if you're if you're missing Pacific Rim, or perhaps you've just enjoyed Pacific Rim: The Black, you can pick that up on Amazon for I think it's under a tenner, and that's for a hard um, hard copy as well. So that's good. Um, and I also watched Monster Hunter, the Miller Djokovic film by Paul Anderson. It? it it started off good, and it ended good. And when I say good, I mean fun. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's. it's, it's the script's not going to win any awards, but there was big no. monsters, big action set pieces. It was good. But the middle, that, that second act really dragged. Right. Um, so I I couldn't recommend it as a rental, but when it comes to Netflix or whatever, it'll be worth a watch. So, Fair. yeah, yeah. Not bad, not good, but um, it, it was entertaining for the majority. I'll, I'll give it that. Um, okay. Joe, what have Kaiju been up to? I have been watching Godzilla Singular Point, as you know very well, Paul. And I have been finally finishing construction on Alex's Graboid. So there we go. So I've I've been finishing that up in my spare time. But uh, other than that, just enjoying fine weather down here. Toby, what have Kaiju been up to? What have I been up to? What have Kaiju been up to? I um, never stop, really. So I'm always part of a lot of projects. I've started my own business called Red Baron Creative. Um, I'm part of many different projects, uh, like the morning after, and not so much kaiju related, but a lot of with practical effects. We do a bit of everything, big creatures to zombies to all sorts of things. Um, and I'm also set to direct the film, hopefully maybe towards the end of the year, but probably more like uh, the start of next year. Well, that sounds great. Are you able to tell us about it, or is it all hush hush at the moment? It's a, it's, it's a little hush hush. It's um, cool. it's a great script that we're developing called Splat. It's um, yeah, very much a zombie film. It's uh, I'm, I'm looking to introduce a lot of like subcultures that come together, and it, it's really just this fun little thing of of where, yeah, um, there's a paintball group of people who come together and they dress. Oh, up that's as- where Splat comes from nice yeah, that's it yeah and um it all starts off with everyone dressing up as zombies and lo and behold of course the paintballs themselves are infected and next thing everyone's starting to turn so we don't know who's what and it, it all gets into all sorts of fun carnage with a lot of subcultural references in there as well that sounds excellent yeah it's gonna be fun the bad news is you have to now throw the question at me we pass it around the table and what kind of have you been up to, Alex? Uh, I have down, downloaded, no, I have pre-ordered the box set Daimajin, um, which is the Tokusatsu trilogy, and it was from 1966 onwards by uh, Dai. And I think they got bought out by Katakawa. And 
from what I understand, Arrow Video are releasing this box set. Matt Frank, who I've had on many times, has done the artwork for it. Have I got that right, Joe? Yes, you've had. Yeah. Yep. So Dimogen is coming out this July. And I kind of urge people to get onto Arrow Video and pre-order that because when we had the incident with the Garamo box set, no one could get that pre-ordered in time. There were lots of copies that people didn't get, so everyone was kind of upset about that. So if you do want to get the Dimogen Trilogy box set, pre-order it now. That's coming out in July. Right, um, introducing our guest, Toby Barron. So we've said that you are a creature prosthetics artist and puppeteer. For our listeners who might not know what creature prosthetics are, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I mean, it's a, a broad ranging term because that really what we do, a lot of the similar processes are involved, whether it's a zombie or whether it's a 24 creature, ultimately, it's a lot of the same processes. So um, a lot of effects artists are, are more than capable of usually handling all, all the various types. So we'll range from creature design to creature builds. Um, we'll also do, you know, the prosthetics that go directly onto people themselves. So it's a whole range of um, artistry that is sort of encapsulated in something called, you know, creature design, prosthetics, um, animatronics, um, although that's a little bit less so with visual effects having taken over so much of the bigger portion of the bigger monster stuff. But when we get to do it, of course, it's, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. And, and like, as we'll talk about with um, Love and Monsters, the two marry together very well these days. So yeah, it's a very um, broad spectrum sort of statement. And as we saw, even with the, the Oscars that, you know, we know that uh, Love and Monsters was just nominated for, unfortunately didn't win, but um, just the fact that we're nominated is just something incredibly special. So for us, it's a lot of like supporting of a practical element that the actors can engage with and interact with. And when we're lucky, they also choose to keep it in the film, <laughs> often augmented by visual effects as well, though. When did you first get into this industry? Wow. Um, that was a while ago. Um, yeah, look, I, I guess my story was I, I went to university and was doing visual arts and I always knew in some way, shape or form I'd be a, an artist and I thought you know, go to uni and do the degree and all that kind of stuff. Well, while I was there, very quickly, my, my painting lecturer actually turned to me and, and two other guys, which is what's important, because I thought that they were fantastic artists. And he basically was encouraging us to leave. And um, we did. And as part of that, you know, I went through, I guess, my first, uh, it's not a midlife crisis, I guess it's an early life crisis where I didn't know what I was going to do. And as part of that, I uh, saw an ad in the paper because I, I left uni and this guy advertised Artist Preferred and answered the ad, went there around midday and we got chatting. And then by 11 o'clock that night, um, pretty much said, oh, look, you know, do I have the room? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And then he showed me downstairs on a, um, at that time, a, an independent film that were, he was working on. And he said, yeah, do you want to help? I said, well, geez, of course. And this is again, at the time where I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to be an artist. I hadn't found any of my own style or any of those sort of things. So all of a sudden I found the film industry and yeah, Steve Boyle, who was a, he's 
you know, just been an incredible influence to me. And I've, you know, worked with him many, many times, including he was one of the, the head of creatures for Love and Monsters. And so we've been friends for, what, 25 odd years. And it's just been an incredible relationship. And so in a way, I feel really lucky. I feel like I fell into it. And yeah, the rest is sort of history, I guess. Regarding falling into it, I feel like one of the things that we always need to stress about art and getting into the industry and practical effects is that nobody's born necessarily with an innate talent to create this stuff. Very true. To just let everybody know, how much practice did you have to put in to oh my God. your job role? It doesn't stop. Like it's still there. And you know, what I would encourage any artist to do is learn every aspect of it. You know, there's no preciousness there. And, you know, you may become like the head sculptor or whatever, which takes a long time, but every part of it's interesting. Every part of it uh, becomes a tool, um, you know, a feather in your cap, so to speak. So I learned mold making um, and, and focused on that. Then I learned and became one of the heads at John Cox Creature Workshop. Um, one of these head foam technicians and one of the mold makers there. And you just build up those sorts of skills while you pursue doing your own stuff. Um, and then from that, it just, you just get to the point when you realize kind of, wow, I actually have a lot to offer and I can do many, many different parts of, of the job. And we will have generalists, which I, I guess I started off as, and then and then out of that, you usually find within yourself what you really are called to do. So for me, a, a big part of it was sculpture. Um, but, you know, there'll be people who, who just focus on mold making and it's an art form in and of, of itself. Um, you've got your designers, um, you have your fabricators, your finishers. Um, there's a lot of very specialist areas. So if you're in any way, shape or form inclined, you, there's usually a spot for you, you know. That's really cool. Yeah, so you start off perhaps on, on a smaller project where you get to try all the different areas almost of art and yeah, and find out which one is best for you almost. That's it, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What would you your, recommend? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, what is your favourite aspect of the job? You were mentioning so many different types of roles. Is yeah. there an aspect that you think, oh, I love this the most? This is my passion. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest draw was really the first time I was on set, which goes way back to when I first met Steve Boyle. And it, it, you know, there was all the fun of making it and, and, and just how incredibly fulfilling that was. But the first time I walked on set, I was sold. And for some people, that's, that's not the case. They, some don't even like being there, but for me, that was really it. And then on top of that, I guess other things built. So definitely sculpting, I've, I've had a strong focus there. But puppeteering is probably one of my favorite, favorite things to do. Um, I, th I think I have I've always had that little desire to, I guess, be on the screen, you know, uh, acting, you know, don't have my quite my chops there, but um, being a puppeteer or being inside a creature, like at the beginning of um, Love and Monsters, where you see the, I keep calling the birds art, I'm not sure what they've changed it to, but being in, in the suit itself is just so, so much fun. It's painful, but it's a lot of fun. Well, just to stop you there, with us being such huge fans of Sumation, the legacy of Godzilla, Gamera, mm. and um, the Japanese influence there, can you tell us more about being in the suit? What's that like? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, after, 
again, often painful. Uh, you're painful. Usually, <laughs> yeah. You're usually in positions that the human body is not really supposed to be in. So um, it's, it, you yeah. I mean, we do often 10 hour plus days. And, you know, when you're shooting that sort of thing, you may have your, your little aches and pains and you just push through. And I think it's the adrenaline of, of doing what you do that really takes you through that process. Um, and along with puppeteering, like I puppeteered uh, the Mavis, the robot that was in Love and Monsters and, you know, doing things like learning the lines and, and learning the subtlety of the movement and, and bringing out that performance. Oh yeah, it, it's, it just lights up my life. It's just, yeah, an amazing thing. You puppeteered Mavis. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, she was, was she was a great character. I really enjoyed. It's like, oh, a lovely lady has caught your eye. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> whoosh. It's just, it was so corny, and it was just, just yeah. that's not the way a human would. <laughs> yeah, like it's a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does an average day involve, um, in your world? In my world, um. So again, I, I pretty much do. You know, wherever I can, I do as much as possible. So for us, it's often we're involved in pre-production. So we'll talk about the the designs, how we'll execute the designs. Um, how, so then how we'll make them. So we'll go through a sculpting process um, or a carving process. We might make it directly or we might make a mold of that creature um, and then pull out a foam latex copy or whatever, you know, whatever it needs to be, whether it's hard or soft or, or such. Then from there, uh, we'll fabricate it, um, do things like the finishing, the seaming and all of those stuff, which is quite a laborious task, um, which really matters. I mean, if you've ever seen a seam, which <laughs> you do in a lot of the earlier films, like for us effects artists, we notice that instantly. So it's that level of detail, really, that it's what it's about. And I think that's what drives us because we're, we're real, we know that in some ways, you know, I know bronze, you could say, is probably the most immortal art form, but for me, having something then on screen uh, for everybody to review and watch and look over, over and over and criticize and break down. You can imagine how much attention we're bringing to it to make the fans happy and, and fulfill ourselves. And then uh, from there, it'll be, uh, we'll take it out on set. Um, it might be the puppeteer or it might be a static creature like the center gator, which didn't quite make the final cut. Um, as a deleted scene, I believe it's on the Blu-ray. Um, so it just depends on what the the object is, what, whether it's a creature or a puppet, or whether it's a prosthetic um, on an actor. So like a prosthetic, for example, like we'll be one of the first people along with unit on a set early start, 3 a.m. in the morning, so to speak, and a few hours to apply it and then babysitting that all day. And then we're one of the last ones to leave because we've got to then remove it and clean the actor or actress up afterwards and make sure that they're all well looked after. So often long days, I think the longest I have done is like a 90 hour week or something, but the average is, you know, 50, 60 hours or so. That's awesome. So you had me at Centigator, so now I'm definitely going to pick up that Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I saw, I heard in the original montage that, or mon our monologue in the beginning of Love Monsters, you know, like things like lizards, alligators, and stuff I'm like, is there going to be an alligator? This is, ooh. But um, I wanted to ask you, you're talking about an immortal art form where everybody like likes to criticize, likes to look at, you know, I want to talk about inspiration. So I'd like to ask this of all of our special effects artists, 
what is like what maybe you can go one or two scenes or two um movies with practical effects that inspired you and then maybe one or two things that you've done that you're particularly proud of and people should look at oh my gosh what a question okay so um what inspires me well, I mean, I guess I have my absolute favorites and most of those usually have to do with the undead. <laughs> so like the George, the Romero films, massive fan, massive, massive fan, massive fan of, you know, people like Tom Savini and how incredibly innovative. Uh, and, you know, I think we're missing that a little bit these days. We have it a little bit uh, easier, I guess, because, you know, all your Rick Bakers and your Tom Savini's, et cetera, they all innovated at a time when, you know, there wasn't a lot there. And we're sort of on the back end of that where we get to stand on the shoulder of those giants. Um, but I, yeah, my all time favorite would have to be Return of the Living Dead. Just love that film. Watch it every few months. Um, uh, along with, yeah, I guess, Wow, there's so many. There's so many I could say, and now that's why I'm drawing, I guess, a blank. But um, I, I'm often a fan, and I think that's what is so special about what we get to do. Is I'm such a fan, often, of what we're working on, and you know, while there's been so many other things that I, I've loved to see, like you know, uh, hands down, Alien, Predator, all the stuff Alec Gillis, etc., did. You know, I just love, love, love that stuff, and and would love to have the opportunity to ever work on one of those sorts of things um but yeah did that answer the question i'm not quite sure um and then my favorite is that the next part of that question my favorites would be um gee whiz oh like rogue that we did for john cox the crocodile for that was just an incredible piece of engineering um and then there's creatures, well, like the host, I guess we'll talk about a little bit later. That creature alone was so complicated. And, and when we were building it, I thought, I knew that there was going to be a very heavy visual effects component because of, you know, how much it moves and, and does what it does in the movie. Um, but getting to make such a complicated creature that uh, worked, you know, that, that could suck somebody into it and chomp and spit and move and tongue wagging and then spit it back out. You know, I'm a f often a fan of the things that I get to work on. Yeah. So as I understand it, uh, you're basically saying that when you're working on a project, you kind of become absorbed by that. And that's that's your passion at the time. It's your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which which makes sense. I mean, if you're putting in 60, 70 hours, then it's going to be your, your focus. You kind of need to be set on this is what I'm doing. This is my life for the time being. Yep, absolutely. It, it's it's all. All you know, you eat, sleep, and and drink it. You know what I mean? It, it's um, all consuming, and there's something really special about that because the relationships you form. You know, so many artists I've worked with here, and I, I know they're they're just incredible people, mm. and and the talent that gets brought to it, the the problem solving being, I guess, one of the main things. Um, because you know we're really still ultimately working with very raw materials, fiberglass, foam, latex. Um, and, it, and to bring it together and make it something that you can look at at times and even freak yourself out about at times. It's like, holy, I mean, look at this thing. It, it looks alive, you know? I mean, obviously brought together by the lighting, the camera work and direction, but um, I guess it's, you know, I, yeah, that speaks to it the most. It's, it's the fact that it's such a team sport. It's really, 
one of the most rewarding things I think we can do in life is be part of each other and share our gifts with each other. Just you saying about how it's all consuming, what's it like stepping down when a project's finally wrapped up? How does oh. it feel emotionally? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Watching a kid graduate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as, as I'm getting to, to learn more about production and directing and things like that, I mean, you really do see, it, it's almost a miracle that a film gets made. It, it really is. There's so much that has to come together. So often by the time, I guess when I was a junior, you know, you're just called up on the Friday and suddenly you're working on the Monday and then it's just full on. And then afterward, you have no idea what's happening next, whether you're going to get hired again. Uh, if you, you know, you often feel that there's more that you could have done or, you know, so much in the, you know, you're still dealing with people. So there's all those interactions that you have there. And yeah, I mean, a lot of us live with a little bit of, uh, an anxiety, I guess, of what's going to be next? Are we ever going to work again? Um, is it ever going to happen again? And not to mention for a lot of people, especially if they have young families, etc. That's quite a stress. It, it's a, it's contract work. So you, you just often don't know what's going to happen next. And I know that's why a lot of people end up creating a side hustle or um, using those same skill sets to create a, a, a say, a, a figurine business or, or whatever it might be. Um, so for those who, who stay in it, it um, you know, you're always living with that. And I guess I'm, you know, really lucky and really grateful that I get to have made a lot of connections. That means that there's always projects there, but of course, balancing that out with life and, you know, you got to pay the rent and all the bills and everything and yet not know what's going to happen, you know, so not to mention there's even the fact that, you know, uh, in Australia, I don't know how it is, say, for over there, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of our wages and stuff haven't changed over the years. Well, everything else goes up. So, you know, you may be restituted fairly well, but you're, it, it yeah, there's, yeah, I guess the, a part where, you know, what you're paid, you're, you're living off for potentially a long time. So like after Love and Monsters, we were hoping to go on to some other projects fairly quickly and didn't. And so suddenly had done fairly well on that, but then, you know, you're living off that. So all your savings get eaten up and, and it can make that a little bit tricky for, for getting ahead in other areas of life, so to speak. So there's a very um, kind of real life aspect oh, to yeah. that. It's whilst you're working on projects that are, you know, internationally renowned and nominated for awards, there's still kind of the bare bones of I need to yeah. live, that this money is what I live off, which is, I think is an important message there. Right, well, we are up to our first break. Uh, thank you very much, everyone who's been listening so far. We're going to be returning and we're going to be speaking specifically about Love and Monsters, which came out last year. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome back to episode 69 of Kaiju Curry House. This week we are talking to Toby Barron and we're going over his involvement with Love and Monsters. Toby, how did you get started with this project? How did I get started? Well, um, well, we got started, I guess, from a, a, a sort of put forward. Our name got put, put forward by the incredible Matt Sloan, who was the head of visual effects. And they, they were discussing at the time, because as, the, as a lot of films often do, about, you know, should there be some practical elements or do we just keep it all VFX? Um, and as we know, you know, it's so often reported that uh, 
actors love to engage with something physical. So we've been part of in the past where we would make something physical and it ultimately ends up becoming a visual effect. Um, there's still something really good about that just because actors appreciate it so, so much. So there was always going to be a question of how, how, how visual effects heavy, how much uh, practical was going to be in there. And, you know, it still is a, a visual effects heavy film and rightly so um, to do those sorts of effects these days on that kind of budget. Um, it, it just isn't there. You know, we can replicate a lot of things practically. It often looks, um, you know, there's something about practical. Everyone's acknowledged that practical is not going to go away anytime ever really because of what it brings to the table. But the, I guess the best thing these days is when it's a bit of a merger of the two. And, you know, Matt Sloan, I think very early recognized that a, a bit of that would be really beneficial to the film. And thankfully, because even I think with Mavis, um, who, you know, for hard edge modeling, things like visual effects for that work really, really well. But the fact that it was a practical, um, just, it just, there's something emotionally that comes forward when there is that practical element there, even when it's augmented by v VFX. Um, not to mention when it is a straight out creature, like the crab, the crab is just amazing. I think it's, you know, and this, again, if we were to make that as a, a practical effects, it, 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 it would be a very, very, very expensive film. So there's a certain crossover that really works, not to mention there's a lot more that you can get out of a visual effect that you know would be too much to to ask of a practical effect but um to get back to the question i guess we uh he put us forward um and through you know the incredible reputation of steve boyle uh thankfully we landed the job and i've worked with steve uh, on and off for i guess over 20 years and yeah we, we were just super excited by what the creatures were that they were asking us to to make a the practical element like when you see the first creature i guess of the um you know the opening scene when it comes through into the bunker and it tears down the, the shower curtain um they they were very keen to have that very goopy and um and very visceral and in those sorts of instances it it is one of those things that are practical comes across very strongly it ends up being ultimately cheaper to do it that way than doing things like those sorts of things in visual effects of course they can do it but um, when we can do it practically they often ask us to do so so it was just one of those opportunities that we got uh, a bunch of the creatures like the the centigator um, that first creature i just mentioned um, there was the blown up once the the queen um, can't remember what they call it now, but the it was we call yeah, it the, the, the gravoid. Sorry, sorry, yeah. gobbler. And um, it explodes, and then you see a shot of it um, after it's been exploded, just sitting in the mount. Well, we made that practically, but it was heavily augmented digitally to give a bit more movement and drippiness and stuff to it. But I think when the two work together, and that's what Matt Sloan recognised, I think very early on too is that to, to come on the top of a practical effect, it's, it's in some ways, I guess, an easier job for them as well. And they've got a really good base to work off. So even with that first creature that I was inside of, that um, one that enters the bunker right at the start, 
So the first part you see when it breaks the, the curtain and comes near him, it's dripping and near his head, near um, Dylan's uh, face. Um, yeah, that was all practical. But what you saw in terms of the size of the creature, its legs and everything else, that was added digitally. So often we will just do a part of it to really get all of those real world feels, if you like, of the lighting, how it bounces and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, is still quite a job for visual effects to do. When it's augmented in that way, that's all stuff that practically it, it's, it's almost, uh, well, like I said, it becomes very expensive. So they took care of those sorts of things and we would do things like some of those close-ups for that or like that, the queen, lamp, uh, the queen that gets exploded, you know, we provided a practical asset, which they, you know, digitally augment. Things like the center gator, which again is in the cut scene, um, that was just all practical because there's a dead thing lying there. So that's easy enough for us to do. Um, then we did, what else did we do? Well, Mavis, um, who, you know, we had the designs made up. It uh, was digi uh, 3D printed. Uh, we then made molds of it to make the multiple copies of it because there's the one where Dylan shoots the arrow into it. So it's just purely practical. And then when it um, is myself puppeteering it for that scene with Dylan, um, it's all practical except for things like the hand. So to take that as, in, as an example, the hand to articulate or to make animatronic, we can do it, but it's it becomes, yeah, more expensive. You're not replicated that many times, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, and to get that performance correct, like it was easy enough for me to do the performance of everything else she does, but when you're adding on like a hand movement, which would have required multiple puppeteers, um, you know, there's a lot more that has to sync up when visual effects can come in and go, we can easily manipulate it and do what it needs to do. So all the hand gestures or all of the projection, like on her face, like she was lit up, but all of that stuff, like, you know, when they show Dylan, his mom and all that kind of stuff, that's of course, visual effects that come in. So that's where you see in Mary of the two, that's just, it's just works. It's so, such a better pipeline. Um, and it ends up um, being stronger, I guess, for it, because sometimes we'll do all, the, all that practical effects and still won't quite sell. So there's the magic of visual effects on top of it. Again, to me, I think the best, you know, for all future directors or whatever, really get au fair with what visual effects and what practical can offer. When you talk to both, you will see how to marry the two and you'll get the best of both worlds. So talking um, about the best of both worlds there, mm. um, we went over this while we were on break, but I think for our listeners, they would really like to see what scenes in Love and Monsters were practical, like where, you know, right. you were doing this. So we've, we've gone over Antzilla and the centipede so yeah. what other areas were there practical effects where you might not have imagined that there would be or you did such a great job that people would be like oh that has to be cgi or something you know not to insult yeah, yeah no and it, yeah it's one of those yeah it, it's it's always lovely of course because i love for me the best thing is when people the audience gets to doubt what it is i think i think that's when everyone's doing their job visual effects and practical. Um, so things like the all those leeches that, that were on Dylan when he was in the water and comes out and rips them off. Um, they're practical, but with uh, like a digital augment on them. 
things like again the exploding queen um it's a all of it's digital up until the explosion all the guts and everything else are practical the the residual of it left in the side of the mountain uh, the, the hill there is practical but then digitally augmented um what else was there there was yeah the first creature i was talking about that's practical except for when you see it in the full screen you see all the legs and everything else their digital augments to it um let me think what else was there the boulder snail because that's my favorite monster oh yeah no that was all all digital the crab was all digital again it was a more i would say if you said the ratio you'd say three quarters of it was was digital and so the practical i guess what what's great about that and what's great about the question is that it does hide what we do so that the practical adds to it um and gives it another dimension like mavis i mean again mavis could have been a digital robot um but again it 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 reads better and you know there's a moment where he hugs her as she dies um to do that digitally you could do it but there's something magical about that practical element there even though again her faceplate was digital her hand was digital um, but all the rest was performance and they um, marry together so well don't they because oh yeah when it, when it's done really well and when we get to work with and again matt sloan i think what was so great about him you know, recommending us, Steve, um, was that he knew this. He knew that, you know, where you guys could take that on. One, it also helps because you can imagine these days, like digital, they have so much on their plate. There's so much work. There's great uh, YouTubes and stuff out there now about just the level of work that they had to do. So part of that is too, is where we can just take some of that pressure off them in the same way for us, where we don't have to articulate Mavis's hand, um, they can take that on and go, yeah, look, that's that's not a problem. And again, for future directors, filmmakers, really understanding the merge of the two. And more and more these days, um, the digital and the practical are really keen to work together. I think in the very early days, that wasn't the case. Everyone was like, no, you, you don't get to do that, you know, and there was a bit of a war there, but now that's not the case. It's really beautiful to see that again, when filmmakers understand how both of them can work together, you get an incredible result where, yeah, things like, like with the, where, what the question insinuates is what's what anymore. And I, I love that, that, you know, we're, we're in the business of smoke and mirrors. And when we can really sell you something where you question that, then everyone's doing their job. One of the questions from our group was that um, they were asking, were any monsters deemed too scary <laughs> to be included? Because obviously this is a relatively family-friendly yeah. film. It's it's not particularly, you know, well, it's accessible, isn't it? It's, it's a film for the whole family, which is what you it. said to me. You know, there, like, there you go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, so were there any monsters that kind of were designed, but actually they didn't make the cut in terms of the fear factor, rather than just kind of editing for time? You know, I I don't think so. A lot of what I got to see in terms of the, this is just personally, I'm not sure if there might be other answers to this, but what I got to see was a lot of the, the creatures that were designed for it made it, you know. Um, to me, you know, that your background there, Alex, that creature is terrifying. And we made a practical yeah. element for that where it, we had these fingers that I hand puppeteered that, you know, sort of come around and, and show it. But Obviously, then they they developed the design more, and then the fingers didn't really work, and it, it wasn't really necessary. But 
to me, that creature is terrifying. The, the original creature that you first see, it's terrifying. Like when we made, made it, I had that question. It was like, this is a kids slash teens kind of family friendly yeah. show. This thing is horrifying. It's a cross between a spider and a bird and a, you know, looking at them, it was, yeah. I, I wondered how they were going to pull it off. And I think that's a real testament to, you know, the acting and Michael's direction, how to make something that is ultimately, you know, it's supposed to terrify Dylan and Dylan responds in a terrified way. Yet there, there's a, a beauty to them. I think it's like how anyone looks at an insect. You're either frightened of a spider or you think they're beautiful. So mm. I think that's what's so amazing about creatures like this, where we get to um, make something still really terrifying and don't, you know, downplay it or make it cutesy. It's still a legitimately frightening creature. But then you look at the boulder snail. It's just so beautiful. But again, at first frightened by it, but ultimately it's, you know, you, you want to, you want to have one as a pet, you know? So here's a question for you. Yes. So sure. this is another question that's come the chumbler. Everybody was wanting to see more of this chumbler. And then the brief snippets that we get for this thing that's supposedly quite epic, you know, yeah. they're in the credits and then maybe like partial glance of it walking through the trees. Yeah. So how much well, creature design went into the chumbler and where is that? Because people want well, to see it. They're all very fleshed out. And, you know, there's a real question about whether there's going to be a second one. I, I truly hope there is because uh, there were so many designs done that um, I think hint at that. And, and creatures like that, like even all the way through, there's a couple of little ones that didn't quite make it as well that um, I think uh, very much lead to, you know, they, I think he's, well, by the end, he's writing a second book, you know. So the first book, we already know there's a lot of creatures that are probably not seen. So I know that there was multiple designs done. And obviously, out of all those, they choose the ones that are going to represent the, you know, the emotional tone and, and drive the story forward. But of course, you know, for future, um, future movies, there, there's definitely a lot of scope for a lot of other stuff to be in there. I mean, we're dealing with everything crossed with everything mutated and you know it's just a plethora of stuff that you could explore see it's joe that i have to thank for this because i was saying to joe i want to watch a film and we should get some new content out and joe said love of monsters i was like ah i'll see what else there is you know no, no seriously watch love of monsters right now and i did and within about 30 seconds when the intro is playing and it's president killed by a giant moth i was like yeah son of a bitch i'm in yeah, okay. You, right. you went straight to Mothra, didn't you, Alex? You're like, Mothra. I knew exactly that. Yeah. I was like, right, okay. That's exactly where it went. <laughs> Who did the art behind this? Right, okay, I'm going stalking. <laughs> but it's, it's a wonderful film. And I think what I really enjoyed was that it is full of tropes to kind of other films of this genre when they're all kind of at that bunker table. I got alien vibes when they're all kind yeah. of just having a natter over dinner. I thought, hmm, in another yeah. circumstance, I can imagine someone's chest opening. And yeah, yeah. Similarly, I, I, I very much got Zombieland vibes with kind of the, oh, the, yeah. the interactions between Minnow and Clyde. That's, but similarly, um, Hit Girl and Big Daddy, I, I kind of got uh, that, um, that, that's, yeah. um, oh, what film is that from? That was uh, Kick-Ass, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So I, I kind of got that dynamic. So it was fun how it felt so referential to other films not that long ago, but then further back with Alien. But it didn't feel so referential, it was patronising. 
you know, it, yeah, it and you know, I think there's a, a slight criticism there of you know, is it in that way, um, you know, borrowing too much from them or a little bit too whatever so. generic or something? But I, I think that's just a, a very you know, a critiques criticism that that you know, for me, it, it's it's a it's a homage if if at most, and I think um, it really does stand alone and. You know, of course, we can see whatever we want to in those things, but to me, it's it's ref it's refreshing. It's a it's a very lovely take on the world, and you know, not to mention in our uh, current slash post COVID world, it's something that really speaks to all of us about how we can be brought together in that way. You know, definitely. And I, I think, think it's a, oh, sorry, I, I was just going to say that I think down to the viewer, like you could be watching Pacific Rim, and half the audience could be saying, well, th this is so referential to the world of kaiju that it feels kind of just uh, plagiarism. And on the other hand, it's, well, no, this is a love letter to that genre. And for that reason, yeah. I do enjoy it. Now, as it happens, I'm not a huge fan of Pacific Rim, but that doesn't mean that I consider it um, plagiarism. It's just that it's not to my taste. But I, yeah. when I watched um, Love and Monsters, you know, I was seeing all these things about, I recognise that, I recognise that, but I wasn't going, no, this is a copy. It, it, it felt like a love letter. It was a homage. It was beautiful form. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a very refreshing take. I think what they did, or what you guys did, is that uh, you take monster movies, you know, and turn it into kind of like a zombie feature. So it's, in monster movies, more often than not, what you're getting is the perspective of a scientist, upper levels, the president, <laughs> people that are not in danger, you know? Well, with the exception of, say, Love and Monsters, where the president's killed by a moth. But, you know, <clears throat> these are things where, like, these people aren't in danger. You're not seeing, like, the real-world consequences. Like, yeah, we're going to shoot missiles at Godzilla. Like, okay, what about, you know, Bob and Debbie that were the collateral in that? You know, you don't see that. Whereas yeah. in Love and Monsters, you're seeing like a tertiary level, like this is what happened. And yeah. I think it was really fantastic because zombie movies, it isn't about like the first wave, the first response, maybe World War Z is, but it's just, it, you're looking at the aftermath, the survival, the real world psychological effects. And it's really interesting to see the long-term potential draw out of what would happen. And yeah. with the exception of, maybe like a twinge of Cloverfield, like you don't really get that in many other films. But what Love and Monsters did is they decided to like zero in on that concept. And then not only did they do that, they made it accessible to like a wider audience. Like I said, like we previewed it, of course, before we showed it to them, but my family has four children and we have a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old going on 10 and a 13. And they all watched it and they all, absolutely loved it the 13 year old for instance it was really funny because she came in as like oh this is another one of joe's monster movies so <laughs> she has her you know tablet or whatever you know tick tocking it up with you know like her earbuds in and then like slowly like more and more glances up and then eventually you know like the, the pad goes down it's just like it really draws you in that's huge and, in and of itself yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, it, it draws you in. It is original in its own right, just for sake of its concept and who it's aimed at, and it's by sake of demographics. So mm. I really enjoyed this movie, not only just because of its fresh take on large monsters, but because I can watch this with a human family. Story. And mm. yeah, it's a human story. It's a fun story. And just like the comments that are made, it's like, you're a terrible shot. Or you only get one, you know, like you, you can't have a good night's sleep or a hot dinner. And it's just like things that you don't consider. Again, 
when the scientists are going through in like their helicopters or whatever, you don't have to think about, oh yeah, well, we cooked dinner tonight. Something's going to smell that. So we can't stay here. You can't sleep. Yeah. Like these are great concepts. And then the monsters themselves, do they vaguely resemble creatures in real life? Yes. But is there, has any, well, I was going to say this um, mysterious island did a giant crab. So I can't really necessarily come out with like the giant crab is a completely original concept, but a sentient giant crab, you know, that can recognize a benefactor and a tormentor, you're like, that's a neat concept. Or you like, you can look in their eyes and tell, you know, like whether or not they're violent, like this is really great. Mm. So I think that Love and Monsters has all to offer audiences. Yeah. I mean, like anybody could watch this film and find something that they enjoy with it. And I think Absolutely. that is its appeal, whether or not it has ties to other franchises, because at this point, there have been a lot of stories told. You're going to find a lot of similarities wherever you decide to look. You can make similarities. Yeah. But well, I once was told about uh, creativity itself by this teacher. And I, it was the best explanation of creativity that I've heard, which is, you know, nothing in a sense, I guess, is original. Um, we could probably cite some examples, but I would almost guarantee that even those so-called original ideas still have um you know a relationship to a lot of things that already exist so my this teacher had once told me that creativity is really about bringing all of the elements that are already here bringing them together in such a way mixing it up mashing it up and then what and creating out of that what we would call something is original and it's not i mean at the end of the day it is the more we base it in reality the more that we base it in things that we've known and then put their twist in it that is a new form of originality. It is a new creativity that allows us to explore it in a different way. And again, all of this all still comes back down to, and what I think Love and Monsters did so well, was that it, it really brought, and you know, originally it was called um, Monster Problems, um, you know, and the problems that he has and the problem with the monsters. But I think we can all agree that the, the title that they went with is a good one. <laughs> it's so much better because it, it really is about it's a love story and it's it's a an incredible story of also uh, an unrequited love and his maturity that comes from it and i think that alone was is is worth the price of admission because that journey alone you know as he matures um is not to mention you know kudos to dylan o'brien he, he just sold that so well and having seen a lot of other stuff because you know when i knew he was on it I watched a lot of these other things like American Sniper is fantastic. I thought, how's this guy going to play this character, this role? And to see that come out, you know, that's what makes the monsters good. That's the funny thing. It, it wouldn't be that without that human story, without that love story. And we do regularly get people say, oh, I enjoyed such and such a monster movie, but I didn't like the script. Or you don't watch it for the human characters. I completely disagree in the case of Love and Monsters. I think that the dynamic between the characters was brilliant. I was totally sold on Joel. I think he's wonderfully awkward. And yeah. I think he's very flawed. In a believable yeah. sense, he wasn't kind of comically flawed. He was very relatable. Yeah. And he there was, there was character growth throughout. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, have, I, have I think from examples like um, like Zombieland, where it's so easy to make those parallels, but at the same time, it becomes its own because of those things. Mm. Yeah. 
even subtle things like Minnow kind of being oh. that tomboy and kind of being rough and ready and yet so delighted by the makeup. I thought that was wonderfully balanced, kind of seeing those different sides to her. She wasn't one dimensional. Yeah. You know, so yeah. yeah. It is time for our second break. When we return, let's get talking about the host, if we can go back to those memories, Toby. Right. Yeah. And then we'll give some uh, personal recommendations for other things that we should look out for. Thank you very much. Great. And welcome back to the final part of Kaiju Curry House. My name is Toby Barron, a creature effects artist. And here we go, talking about the host. Whereabouts are you on the picture behind me? Let's have a look. Me? Uh, oh, yeah, that's a young me. That's when I have my long hair and look at that lovely beard going on. The gray shirt with the dark blue sleeves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What year was uh, that? 2005. Okay, 16 years so. ago. Oh, and let, let, let's Oof. Alex. Jeez, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, okay, I'm having technical problems. Uh, thank you. We're going to have to go now. No, tell us about your involvement with the host because this yeah. is probably my favorite monster movie. Uh, uh, I, I adore it, it. I couldn't even believe we were going to make this thing. It's just seemed so big and it was so complicated there was so many moving parts this thing had to swallow someone spit someone out use its tongue had all these flaps its eye one of its eye not the damaged eye moved um it was an in incredible incredible build and this is um with uh, john cox creature workshop um so this was really the heyday before visual effects really took over big things so we got to, and even though this is a very visual effects heavy film as well, it's again, one of those really awesome marriages of where visual effects take care of it, running down the steps and diving in the water and all the stuff that it did. And then when it came up to the nice close-ups, like, you know, when the main actor stabs it in the eye and when it spits out the other person, it, that was when the practical really came into its own. And again, whenever you have an actor interacting with something, um this is really where practical shines but again th this build it was i mean such an honor to be part of that was at a stage where i'd sort of got my chops up enough where i was um one of the one of the sculptors you know david wren um, was the lead sculptor who's just an amazing sculptor along with you know richard muick um i think tobias jarki and liam hardy uh, also was sculpting because um, it was a it was a big sculpt so like it, it took us weeks to do um, there were so many parts that had to come together so you can imagine for John Cox like figuring out how that was all going to come together is just a you know a, a mind mess of itself um, then there were, it was a big molding team um, with like Brett Beecham I think and Josh Head um and then uh, parallel to when we're making something like that this is where it gets really tricky you're making this very complicated very detailed very in some way like a lot of like it's side flaps and again the tongue and everything else it, it, they're all independent mechanical movements in and of themselves so um the mechanical team works side by side with what we're doing now you can imagine they're often making things blind because they don't quite know what we're going to throw at them. Um, if you built it all first and then had animatronics come on top of it, um, it would be somewhat, I guess, easier. But you know, a lot of these things in terms of getting something done efficiently, it's all done at the same time. So there's a lot of communication back and forth. And you know, that was led by 
the animatronics by Sonny Tilders, James Paul, and um, Stephen Wren, who unfortunately just just passed rest in peace. Um, an incredible uh, mechanical artist, um, and Trevor Ty. You know, so if you look at that, that's still a relatively small team that builds such an incredibly complex creature. Um, and then from there, um, along with people who contributed during it too, uh, you know, James Paul obviously was one of the animatronics, but they got to perform along with Richard Muick and um, uh, Dan Carlisle. Um, got to take it over to Korea and and... If you look at actually, if, if you guys are interested, there's a a YouTube uh, of a lot of John Cox's creatures from like Rogue and Peter Pan and amazing, amazing um, stuff that that he did. Um, but the host one in particular, a really good uh, YouTube to check out, is sculpting the giant fish monster from, for uh, Bong Joon Ho's The Host. Um, and that really shows uh, a, a great montage of from beginning to end. Um, so you get to see what it looked like out on set and what they did with it, right? Yeah, you know, from the the very first sculpting of it right through to the whole, you know, the whole process. Yeah. How so was how... this transported? So sorry, Paul. Um, I, how on <laughs> earth was that transported over to Korea? Actually, I imagine it was chucked in a container and, and taken over. Yeah, it's a we unit. We do that a lot because Australia is such a, a broad country and I'll often work on things that, you know, we do in South Australia or down in Victoria. Um, so a lot of us are very transient when we do these things or over in New Zealand, I worked on Ash versus Evil Dead, uh, the latest season. So we're very willing to travel. We're, we, we, often have to ship mega things, including driving down the highway with a massive crocodile and a tow truck, um, you know, getting getting glances, I guess, from everyone as, as we go down. It's a bit of fun. That's a road trip kid's dream to see. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I can imagine like the kids doing road trips in Australia. It's like, dad, we've been in the car for two. What is that? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why I love putting like the dead bodies that I make in, in the passenger seat just to get a <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been pulled over for something for that? You know, like you just no, have like quite, zombies in the back of your pickup. Yeah, I was just going to say, because this is obviously a Korean film. Yeah. You're in Australia. How yeah. were they, did they send you over some artwork or, or did they yeah, just give you a look? Yeah, I was wondering how, how much creativity do you get and how did they check up on you at all? Did you have to do video calls yeah. to show the progress? Things like that? Look, it, it all depends. So sometimes we, um, as the workshop ourselves, we might do the designs and it gets, you know, back and forth and approved. But all too often, like there's a pre-production stage, which is where we usually come in. But in the pre-pre-production stage is where a lot of that sort of development and and knocking out designs to obviously sell to investors to get them on board in the first place. So often those initial designs, excuse me, are the ones that um, they'll often run with because they're the ones that have been approved. But in there, you know, we're often looking at a 2D design. And even though they might be fleshed out in, you know, orthographic views, et cetera, we will still need to take uh, a lot of creative license in how we render that in a 3D uh, world. So a, a drawing will definitely take you so far, and especially if they do all aspects. And then from there, we'll, um, we'll develop on that on top of it. But it always keeps true to the essence of what the director wanted in the first place, the, the initial vision. Okay. 
Yeah, because the director obviously isn't going to be an artist, so he's he's got something in his mind that he's trying to get someone to yeah to draw out for him. Exactly. And yeah. So, um, do you have to almost bid for the job? Do they? Are you competing against other companies yeah. that, that that do some artwork and they they go with whoever? Yep. Kind of gets the feeling the best. I mean, a certain reputation gets built. You know, again, John Cox, a winner of the Oscar for Babe. You know, you can imagine when they're in talks with him, because, you know, one of the first projects I worked on at his workshop was Scooby-Doo. And, you know, there, in, in, especially back, I guess, in those days when animatronics featured so heavily, John Cox was just one of the forefront, you know, one of the yeah. pioneers of that trade here in Australia. So, you know, it was kind of, and then in that way, a bit of a no-brainer that they, they, he would be one of the people that they go to. Um, but yeah, it's always usually a, a bidding with each other. But in the same way, you know, most of the effects companies I know, a lot of, all of us know each other here. It's, it's a small but big industry. Um, there is that competition, but it's a very friendly competition. And often a lot of the people who would say compete against end up in a department on the same film anyway, um, or would be people that we end up working with directly who would either come work with us or we'd work with them. So you know, it's used a lot, the idea that it's a, a family industry. And, and it is because most of the people here, we all know each other. So um, even if it might be a competition at the end, it's ultimately still with a very good, um, we're, we're always really championing whoever gets it. it. It's just always such a good thing, you know. I do think it is time for us to round off the episode. It's been wonderful hearing about the host and especially about Love and Monsters, but it is time for us to give our final recommendations. Now, Joe, I know you need to leave first. So would you like to put out your suggestions to our listeners? Well, like I recommended to you guys, if you get the chance, please pick up or stream on Netflix, Love and Monsters. It is a fantastic film. Maybe watch it before you show younger audiences, but it is generally acceptable. Yeah. I will also go out and uh, recommend a book along a similar vein, because we all know that Joe loves to read. Um, Warren Fay's Fragment. It is about strange and wonderful creatures on an island. It has kind of a Jurassic Park feel. It's basically about an island in the Pacific that has been apart from the rest of the world for hundreds of millions of years. And the creatures there, um, each one of them is about as nightmarish as you could find in Love and Monsters. And it is scientists going in to try and understand this world, but at the same time, not being prepared for what they find. And it is an absolutely fantastic, self-contained book. And it has all the science, all the monstery goodness that you could want. And it is a very action-driven book as well. So I'll give that a hearty recommend. Bellas? Paul? Yeah, I mean, I can. Joe recommended that book to me, and I can confirm it's a very good read. Um, but my recommendation is going to be um, a short movie called "Here There Be Monsters," mm -hmm. because when I saw that we were having Toby um, on board, I had a look through IMDb to see what he had done, and he plays the monster um, in this short film that I wouldn't say is kid friendly, um, but it's um, it's a very it's a very enjoyable film. Um, me and my wife watched it last night and the ending shocked us um but yeah yeah um here there be monsters it's available on youtube and um good watch and for myself i recommend on social media that you 
make a point of following Arrow Video because the amount of content that they have got for pre-order now is very exciting. They are getting um, they are getting the opportunity to release a lot of fantastic content. So I mentioned the um, my brain's gone. I mentioned Dino Diamogen. That's going to be coming out in July, the trilogy. There's also talk of some yokai goodness coming out in time for October, which I'm very excited about. So there's some classic 60s movies there. So do check out Arrow Video because the content that they are getting hold of and the high quality physical releases that are coming out. I know that Paul said about streaming um, Love of Monsters. Sorry, Joe said that. But actually, I'd say go on Amazon and buy a copy of the Blu-ray because I think uh, physical copies all the way. It's, it's the way forward. I think the fact that you get access to those special features and there's so many wonderful things that you can enjoy. And you were talking about uh, zombie movies, uh, Toby. My favourite would have to be the, um, the, I suppose the, what's the term for it? Um, Zack Snyder's uh, re-envisaging of Dawn of the Dead. I think it's a wonderful modern take. So good. Uh, and that's my favourite Zack Snyder film. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a wonderful film. It's um, not kid-friendly in any way, but it is great fun. And then alongside that, watch The Host. It's a 15 certificate, so again, right. a bit more mature, but I think it's an absolutely phenomenal monster movie. Yeah. Toby, your recommendations? Um, well, this will be a future recommendation, I guess. And if I can take the zombie line just for a second, there's um, a great uh, project that I'm attached to called The Morning After. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be... Uh, Directed by two incredible human beings, um, uh, Bonnie Drake and Johan Bramander. They're great UK filmmakers who did a film called American Burger. Um, they, they all met through this, uh, the, I think it's a UK, the Fantasia Film Festival. Um, so Judd Tilliard, a producer, um, and working with uh, David, who produced uh, Day of the Dead. So we've got a, a nice little lineage there and also joined by Tom Savini, who's a personal effects hero of mine who is set to act in it. Um, so that's that's on the cards and we're all sort of working together to get that across the line. But um, that's going to be an incredible one to, to be a part of and to watch. That sounds fantastic. And uh, all being well, Toby, we'll have you back on the show at some point to talk about other things you've worked on and uh, any future projects. So thank you very much, um, Joe, when you're ready. It's time for us to say goodbye. Thanks, folks, as always, for listening, and keep it kaiju. time i was watching the film i was like nothing better happened to that damn dog yeah no right if anything happens to that dog <laughs> yeah i hate this movie everyone, that dog, man. okay so show. so yeah. basically they were asking it's like were any effects done for the dog because that means at some point somebody was going to do something to the dog yeah so, no 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 the dog was yeah the, the dog, dog was, was always going to live always okay. gonna yeah okay right okay we'll have to we'll have to like <laughs> Put that in. The dog lives. Yeah. <laughs> the dog was only just. <laughs> only oh. <laughs> oh gosh, would that? I mean, like, would it went for? Man, that, time for it got taken out. It's yeah. It, when it, boy it, went for that dress at the end, like yeah. it was really funny. So my partner was just like, "You didn't get this upset or like that tense with like 
kids or people were dying in such and such other yeah. film. No, like no, why? No. It's the dog. <laughs> it's the dog. <laughs> Dog. But it's like that scene in Independence Day when, like, all of those people are, you know, killed by that yeah, glass and of the dog just like looks okay. So who gives a yeah. shit? You know, the dog jumps <laughs> out of the way of the fire. We're fine. People would have walked out if that dog had died. It would have been the end. Yeah, people would have. It would be like, no, not gonna happen. But we're, we're doing mass writing. It would have been like, oh, have you seen Love and Monsters? I mean, it's mm. such a great film, but the dog dies. Like, oh, mm. I want to see it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, I've seen online people. That was their first question. Did the, does the dog die? Does the dog die? <laughs> like, you know, they there's a there's a website. There is a website. There's no. Does the dog die? Does the dog die? There's a website for yeah. people yeah. like myself 